You don't want to do that. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm heroic orange tabby Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here with inappropriately cartoonish troll hammer Jeb Lund. Hello, Jeb. Thunk. <sighs> Oof. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of thunk, do we have any pod business before we wade into this somewhat baffling, very dark 1998 film, Savior? I believe we're still honoring the uh, the UN armistice on new Quaid content, and uh, there's a ceasefire, I guess is the technical term, so we'll leave it there. Mm-hmm. We were told by a designated Quaid in full white helmet, <laughs> Tara Ariano, that she does not want us to listen to the Denisons because she does not want anyone to listen to the Denisons. She's I, a humanitarian. She, she is. I've always said so. Um, we're, we're not going to be dealing with much humanitarianism today as we're talking about savior, which, uh, okay, let's just start with a plot summary and then we'll do what we can. Yeah, probably best. Europe, the 1990s. After his wife, Natasha Kinski and Quebecois Culkin's son are killed in a terror attack at a cafe, not for committing the I married a guy who does time-consuming job X, but will now pretend I didn't understand what that entailed and pout about it instead of just going to the fucking movies by myself, trope. Although that does occur, at length. Joshua Rose, Dennis Quaid, marches down the street from the committal and shoots up a mosque, then joins the Foreign Legion under the name Guy. Get it? Are you sure? He then ends up in Bosnia with his bestie Stellan Skarsgård, which makes no sense, but Skarsgård is soon killed by a grenade while getting stoned in a sandbag fort, so don't worry about it, we guess. The point is that Guy is a broken and brutal mercenary now, until he saves the pregnant Vera from his own Serb partner Goran, delivers Vera's baby, whom we are to understand is the product of a rape that has also gotten Vera shunned from her own community, and tries to get Vera to care about her newborn before slash while ferrying them both to safety at the Red Cross depot in Split. Several shootouts and many loving shots of fruit later, Guy does make it to his destination, but with only part of his precious cargo, driven half-mad by blood loss, unexpressed grief, and a rustic pan flute that has now replaced the Zydeco accordion as this co-host's chief musical nemesis. <laughs> Will he forge a new family in the fires of the Balkan conflict? Is Kinski's agent on Mount Rushmore for getting her top billing in a project that sees her character die before her name even appears in the opening credits? And is this movie actually an allegory for anything, or is it just fetishizing atrocities for cheap, reflexive response? Not sure I have the answer to any of those questions except the Kinski thing. Jeb, did I miss anything in the plot? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, a apart from Stellan Skarsgård, just <laughs> just adding another quote to the list of incredible Stellan Skarsgård quotes there are in movies across uh, time, uh-huh. <laughs> where you're just like, oh, now I've heard that voice say that. Okay. Oh, um, do we have a clip of that? Which, uh, which quote are you referring to? I, actually, we do. Uh, <laughs> here it is. Okay. Look what I found, man. Good grass. Let's roll a huge bomber. (laughs) 
we we have the end of that quote to wit this war sucks man <laughs> stop thinking about it i'm getting out of here yeah what are you gonna do sell used fucking cars <laughs> This occurs in the middle of a like weird timeline jump of some sort, like a sort of montaging of timelines that I'm not entirely clear on. It doesn't not work, except I had a lot of questions about why Skarsgård is visiting Guy in a sniper's nest, which is a sniper's nest and is supposed to be, you know, kind of secret, right? Do I not understand how sniping works? That's possible. And then he's like, okay, so I'm just going to quit. Bye. And then he goes to get stoned in a sandbag. For The whole thing is really a little confusing. It also implies that Dennis Quaid has been in that nest for days. And, uh-huh. you know, he's, we've watched him take three shots from the same position. And he probably would have been dead for about two if he hadn't moved at all. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I guess, you know, Stellan just hangs out like underneath the sniper's nest. Like, like in view of it, just sort of doing the Goldfinger thing where Dennis Quaid can help him cheat at Gin Rummy in case any refugees come across and want a game. I'm not, it is odd from a, a basic tactical standpoint. I'm not a big uh, military geek, but uh, I, I did have some cues about that. Yeah. The contemporary reviews seemed uniformly positive and admiring about Savior and, um, sort of didn't notice any of these things, seemed fine with Dennis Quaid's performance. Um, we can hear some snippets if you like, but I don't I don't exactly disagree that this is a I don't know. That this movie is effective in certain ways, but I'm not sure I'm not sure it's successful as a work. I don't know. I think that's fair. I, you know, I was, I was watching it and trying to ask myself if I sort of deracinated it from all the cultural expectations I would have of it, how would I feel? Um, right. I think it would be a better movie if it had not been Dennis Quaid or if it had been somebody with just a lower Q rating or with less sort of jolly baggage. I appreciate the effort he's trying to make. It just doesn't quite work. And I'm not sure exactly how it doesn't quite work i don't even necessarily think it's his fault i think he's doing about the best he can with it it's just um it reminded me a lot of um come and see in the sense that it's this sort of series of vignettes that fit in with complete dislocation from a partisan war and just the nature of partisan warfare which come and see did much better and much more relentlessly i i don't mind they're trying to do it with this war i think the writer director also did their best like Quaid. It just there is that one little last bit like that isn't quite catching and the machine isn't quite moving as it should and i'm not sure where that last gear is and i'm not sure what does it but it doesn't do it yeah i i felt the same way i think if you subtract the whole prologue where yeah. joshua rose becomes the icily murderous gi then it becomes a series of vignettes, like you said, that are taken like even further out of context, ergo have better context with each other. 
So that's that's one note I would have that I, I'm sure that in order for this to get made, some studio is like, you have to give him a motivation. Like, he's a mercenary. It's baked in that you, I don't think you need that here. I think it makes it less effective to try to rationalize this with this, you know, sort of very cheaply shot and tacked on feeling beginning. Yeah including the like foreign legion training where they're basically expositing like this is why your name is this now this is why you're a man without a country now like i think you could have just started with that conversation with goran which we do have a clip of and had it work a lot better and then some of the timeline slash flashback fudging with stoner skarsgård getting blown up works better I don't know. Like, I think it's trying to be allegorical. It's trying to be an anti-war movie. And I don't think you actually have to try that hard to be that. I think you just show this one story in context and then that that gets the message across. But this was produced by Oliver Stone. So I guess attention must be paid to certain war movie tropes. I don't, I don't know. But Ebert liked it. He gave it three and a half stars. He said this was an an effective anti-war film. Yes and no. I don't know. I think you're right in that the prologue should just be entirely scrapped. And from what little I read, I got the sense that Oliver Stone being willing to shepherd it through is the only thing that got it money. And that, Mm -hmm. that seems like an enormous concession they probably had to make. But You know, I I think if you're watching this movie and you're choosing to watch this movie and you're sitting through with it to the end, you probably have the kind of um, either intellectual curiosity or, I don't know, value system that lets you understand Dennis Quaid's character without thinking, well, my understanding means that I am like him now and I approve of this, right? Like (laughs) you can pretty much understand how this guy got here and maybe how he's being changed without first going like, well, yes, I mean, he is a horribly broken, uh, maybe slightly demented killer, but he killed the right people for good reasons. You know, (laughs) there was never any point where that prologue was going to be enough to get me over a moral hump so i'm like well he's sniping kids on a bridge he came by it honestly i was never going to do that but i'm already watching give me the credit the timeout reviewer who is anonymous uh agreed with us saying that it uh quote squared up to the war in yugoslavia and never looks for the hollywood cop-out save perhaps for the first five minutes a redundant, perfunctory prologue which attempts to explain Quaid's, quote, motivation and dispatches with Kinski before the credits have rolled. It's unnecessary because Quaid's dead eyes tell you all you need to know. This is a brave, concentrated, resolutely unsympathetic performance unlike anything he's done before, end quote. I mean, I guess we can get into that more in the Quaid qua Quaid section, but I did not feel his eyes were dead. Panic is what I was seeing a lot, possibly character, possibly actor also. Agree with everything else in Ray the Prologue. I don't think it's resolutely unsympathetic either, because I think it's, I think there's enough Quaid in it that whether you're supposed to or not, you have a relationship with his brand. Yeah. That complicating nature of of bringing what you know of him into the movie i think also would have been fine without the prologue right because you're already going to do the work of well how did dennis quaid get here 
come on, mm-hmm. must have been something, right? Then you're you're kind of going, well, there's this presumption that he is returning to his natural state, right? The war is the aberration. We are not innately like the guy with the mallet. And you're oh, you're already on step one of that if you're just coming into it as like, well, there's Dennis Quaid. Yeah. Stephen Holden, reviewing it for The New York Times, wrote that it's the story of, quote, two people who have been dehumanized by war, reaffirming the basic human connections without which civilization couldn't continue. Robert Orr's biting dialogue and Mr. Quaid's stoic, dry-eyed performance do their best to undercut the more maudlin aspects of this redemptive fable, and despite its lurking sentimentality, the movie does its excruciating job. It conveys the nihilistic essence of war with the force of a kick in the gut, end quote. Uh, this one is so tough, really, to like get a handle on, because I think it was trying to do a lot of things and succeeding at a lot of them, but I don't think this is the role for Quaid. I don't think he does. I think he's getting more credit maybe than he deserves or he's drafting credit off of the writing and the construction of the thing. And I feel like a lot of the set pieces that are supposed to drive home a point that most of us have absorbed by the time we're six years old felt like I had just seen them before in bigger budget movies by Steven Spielberg. So this one is tough to rate on an axis of good and not good, but that's where I'd argue a little bit. And I mean, there are some some problems with the set pieces, the bit where she gives birth after Goran attempts to essentially kick the baby out of her, mm-hmm. uh, take place in what looks very much like a, this is the access corridor behind the subway set, or mm-hmm. this is the tunnel that the uh, the cave that the kids seek shelter in, in a camping movie set. It just, you just get this very obvious sense of like, and now we're at the scene mm-hmm. when it happens. And there, you know, there are bits where those set pieces really show the budget on this. Mm-hmm. But I get that these scenes of sudden, uh, either sexualized or at least like lascivious, violent depravity are things you can see in stuff like Saving Private Ryan. But there is, uh, I think, something that this does well that also like Come and See does where, you know, it really highlights how cruelly happenstance so many of these things are. Like there, yeah. there is this this overall sense of purpose that Saving Private Ryan can't get out of. Like there, every scene does feel, in, in part because of how the movie is made and how Spielberg does things, like integrated with like a grander gesture, purpose, whatever. Whereas there is something so just violently pointless to so much of this movie that is extremely accurate. I mean, so there mm, is, yeah. it is a, a conception of war that doesn't wind up in films, I think it, precisely for that structural reason, like the aimlessness with which these people suffer and die, which, you know, obviously like echoes the aimlessness with which they suffered and died to the strenuous unconcern of the United States for like basically a decade. That works, I think, for me as a commentary on the squalidness of this kind of war. Well, I mean, there is a a meanness, not just in the sort of um, general meaning of meanness, but mean, like emotionally parsimonious, basically, like a like a smallness to it that I think is good. But it put me more in mind of um, Schindler's List and like this guy shaving in a, you know, like a heart 
top sort of cosmetics and jewelry case from the 50s, which all our grandmas had, while the hammer guy is doing his thing. I just felt like that was still difficult to watch. Like it had its effectiveness, but it was also still derivative. And I'm not like there's a weird Moebius of cultural reception at work there that I'm not sure if my reaction is on the movie or on me. I mean, it doesn't not work. And they're, spoiler, not afraid to kill Vera. I sort of respected the movie not Hollywooding that part of it. That kind of banality of death is something that, like, just by its foreign nature, I don't think was going to translate well. But, I mean, it, you know, it's hinted at and, and because we don't really get as much of a sense of the social world that uh, Vera came from and where she knew these people before, you don't realize as much. I think that, you know, the guy who's shaving is like the son of Buddy Garrity, you know, like, yeah, he is he is the the scion of a Chevy dealership in town, like that equivalent of this. This guy isn't some prima donna from the general staff who got like all these postgraduate degrees in warfare. It's like this is the person who had the nicest truck when the genocide <laughs> right. started. Right. And instead the banality winds up being like okay uh, the the banality the repetition that this is banal you know this kind of death is and like i've seen that i'm an educated viewer but of course like we do react like well i've seen this before to violently unpleasant things that are a trope in literature and history humanity whatever uh in a way that we don't to like well they're gonna fall in love oh my you know like we're not sitting there like come the fuck on they get married in the end you know but like this is every bit is true is that and so like i'm sitting there because i had that same thing it's like oh we're doing this part again yeah i've seen this but like this part always happens you know, so at some point, like, we're allowed to repeat that theme. Yeah, I get that the vanity that exists alongside the cruelty is, I'm not saying it's not credible. I just felt yeah. like, what exactly is this story saying about that, that other stories haven't? But I guess that's sort of beside the point. So yeah, that's that's a good point. And also, because this is not an entirely American and Hollywood production, you are getting a more like holistic take on the idea that the good guys usually lose, which is much more of a European. Not everyone got out Gallic Shrug, which I, I appreciate on a certain yeah. level. And there's also um, some commentary specifically about Hollywood. And I, I felt maybe a little personally trolled <laughs> by, by Gorin in clip three. You're French. Huh? American. I lived in France. Did you ever see uh, 90210? What? Beverly Hills, 90210. American show. Take it. See this? It's Luke Perry. You know the guy? I should let grow these, um, how do you call these? Uh, sideburns. Yeah, sideburns. Can you imagine me? Brand new partner with brand new cybers. You ought to go to Hollywood. He really ought to have. That actor was excellent, I thought. Yeah. Good t-shirt, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, I'm going to hear about this. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry. We could, we could step right along, but uh, you know I had to. No, it's fine. I was just watching it. Going like, hills well. <laughs> oh, 
bless. I don't know how much else I have to say about the movie Qua movie. Like, I wish it didn't have the prologue and I wish it had just sort of leaned all the way into this is a small budget movie that spent all its money on Dennis Quaid and Natasha Kinski. And now we're just going to have to rely on florid shot making, allegorical symbology, collaging, like just go full allegory. Although the budget was $10 million and the worldwide gross was like 13,000. So like literally nobody saw this movie. Yeah. Except us. Never heard of it. Yeah, me neither. So I guess guess we got to rate this thing. Sure. For all its shortcomings, I I think, I, I think almost... You know, you're knocking almost two points off just for that prologue. But I think in spite of its budget, in spite of Quaid using his angry or grumpy voice in some bits, um, Mm -hmm. it's about a seven. I would say go watch it just because there are so few films about this war and this kind of warfare. I wound up feeling well disposed toward it as a... um, an artistic document and commentary in spite of the things that that were hindering it. Yeah. I mean, I would say if you're presented with the choice between this and Welcome to Sarajevo, I would not necessarily go with this, but I will also give it a seven. I also am not upset at having watched it. It is an upsetting watch. The prologue is garbage time, but now that you know to skip it, you can. Also, just the warning in terms of the contents and and if you go to like read the Wikipedia summary, I mean, or at least maybe this is me reading hastily, but the degree of rape in it seemed to be much more active and present as opposed to implied and historic, which was uh, kind of a relief because I just can't watch that happen graphically. Yeah. And even the, um, the brutalizing is sort of like some air is let out of it when it is shown the the ripples are worse than the the actual rock hitting the water i would say um yeah i'll give it a 7 also i think it if nothing else sort of got me turning it over and looking at the back like well why doesn't this exactly go as far as it could a last part of the reason for that i suspect is the casting of guy lucky and rose we do get a little we do get a little singing uh yes everybody ready <laughs> Okay. Yep. Don't nobody do me, do me like you. It's blues. Don't nobody do me. It gets me going. Do me like you. Yeah. Slow down, Slow down day. Hey, you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a baby. You don't like the blues. Come kid. Any of the blues shut you up? Okay. <laughs> this is sort of not a typical clip from his performance, but it's where he's like the quaintiest in a way that feels both wrong for this part, but also right for this part. I don't know. My relationship with him in this movie is sort of hard to hard to get a beat on. I don't think he does a bad job, but I don't think he's the right one for the job either. I think that's fair. In the spirit of real unfairness, when he started singing, I was like, oh man, I can't believe he made them add this scene. Same. <laughs> you know? That's exactly what my notes say. Like, really? <laughs> I mean, I know he didn't. Nobody could possibly be that crass. Even DQ at his cokiest moment was not mm. sitting there going like, 
I got to get the blues. You know, yeah, like, I don't know. I, I don't but, think so either. But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's just that it's some higher tier of ethereal gearing that is not connecting, even though he is making his best good faith effort. That struck me as being something that would be a totally organic plot element of like having this guy finally have a moment of expressing you know, of, of unleashing kind of, you know, an animal reaction to things, even if it's maybe intimidating to her or, you know, if nothing else as it is here, you know, at least bizarre that there would be this kind of break and you would want that structurally. But I don't know, I, I, I hear him talking to his wife, Trudy, in, in the right stuff, you know, driving out to Edwards in the convertible with the, the blues in the background. It just, it all has an off pitch to it or you know like i said that final gear isn't connecting and and it, it ain't his fault he's just you know like he said he's not the right man for the job i guess well if you don't have the prologue and he doesn't have to present as this impacted mostly monster then maybe he can be a little more quady in this role even if that's theoretically more off-putting to the audience, but that's not the way the story is set up. I just don't think that playing sort of repressed and occluded emotion is his strength or something that he should be cast for. And we've been on a real run of them here in season five of these sort of like constipated, avenging dark angels that it's like, I understand why he would want to go in that direction, but I think it's time probably for casting directors to stop indulging it. Right. I think, you know, it would have been a more challenging choice and probably exactly the sort of thing that would keep it from being made in the United States to have him almost be like, just go be Quaid. Like, we'll get rid of the prologue and you be Quaid through the whole thing. Just be charming as hell. Mm hmm. Because that's going to be that in combination of, with what it is you've chosen to make your career is going to make you a very troubling psychopath. Mm -hmm. Quaid's intensity seems to be the start with the big grin and then drop it. You know, you don't even have to frown. Just no longer be grinning and I will be afraid of you. Your turbulent psychopathy does not come from brooding. It comes from being wildly inappropriately jolly in all circumstances and then every now and again just turning off the light in the middle of a conversation and watching what everyone does yeah but yeah but the problem here also is that goran is in that mode right that he's you know strolling through the rubble that used to be a town talking about luke berry and uh, sideburns and it's like okay that's where Quaid could really play off of that. Like, not that he only has the one note, but because that one note is so loud in terms of what he's usually cast for or against, to have his Serbian counterpart in that role is like, that leaves him nowhere to go or the script nowhere to go with him. He just has to be this brooding thing that I don't, he just doesn't brood well. There's, no. Yeah. The reviews tend to talk about how he's, you know, very stoic and dry and flat. And like I said, I'm not getting a flat line. I'm getting dread. I'm getting active, both hands across his face, trying to suppress the grin. And that's not the same thing. So I'm going to give this a four. 
for quadiness. Really? Where are the other three bits of quade coming from for you? I guess like that to me would be the question, like where is the quade? Because I don't see much except for you, you, I think in the last one or, you know, the, the second one this season made it like his sling blade voice. I think of it as the, uh, <laughs> the Nick Cage and Con Air with the don't treat women that way. You know, yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. He, yep. he gets his full on like, well, I'm grumpy mm-hmm. voice a couple times. And you're like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially when he's trying to pronounce European names correctly then his accent sort of like slides down this hill into baton rouge that you're like what is what's happening just just say goren you know you want to sniping um, is a way of life <laughs> oh god <laughs> no thanks he is in like every frame of the movie basically and I think he's doing the best he can. He's better than he usually is in this role. I just feel like there's a there's a volume question. Quantitatively, this is quite quaity, but in terms of like the the vulpinity of it, not very. You know what? I, let me mark it down to a three. But three. See, I was gonna say about maybe like a two and a half, two. because you get one for like the presence of him. <laughs> you can't get rid of that. And then you get two for the presence of Grumpy Quaid. And then there are a couple, he has a kind of like, he always goes to almost childlike surprise when he goes to joy or wonderment. Mm -hmm. And so when you get the scene at the end with the baby, there was a little bit of kind of like a a golly kind of crossed his face. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I was like, is that a two or a two and a half? But I mean, despite the actual physical Dennis ubiquity, uh-huh. There is like an almost total dearth of quadosity. And it, it does make me wonder. I mean, we are sort of looking at, I think, Quaid at a, we're at a hinge point for Quaid in terms of how he evidently sees his own acting brand, I think, mm-hmm. here in mid season five going into season six. So maybe we need to uh, revise the Quaid assessment bylaws i don't i don't know but maybe uh maybe that grumpy sling blade voice is more quady like needs to be a bigger part of the assessment i don't know yeah maybe like toggling the um the affability from vulpinity to fraternal or mentorship as he gets older because well I seem and to feel there's like-, like the the dilfy aspect of it that's starting with the parent trap i think that's like a whole different generation of you know it's funny like dilf just seems like such an imprecation in the way that milf doesn't like milf just seems like a fonder thing whereas dilf just seems like you stopped and you were like well yeah he looks good but you really wanted to say like dill weed dill like anything kind of beavis and (laughs) and buttheadian yeah anyway i take your i take your terminology (laughs) So, uh, are you at a two and a half or a two on this? I think just a two. I mean, that's, that's where the evidence leads me. I, uh, I, like, I think the, the half is more hope than anything. Okay. Fair enough. All right. That's it, folks. Next time on Quaid in Full, everything that rises. Will it converge? We'll let you know. In the meantime, take a break from trying to find that Luke Perry shirt on eBay and check out the show notes and follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod. 
You can get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaidenfull. Quaidenfull is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Get after that wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaidenfull so other people can find it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Maybe you should take a week off. I could use it. Nice, you could use it.